Good evening. Tonight, the topic is sloth and torpor. How many of you experienced that tonight during the meditation? <laughs> so it's a very common one for meditators, beginning meditators, intermediate meditators, and experienced meditators. And um, it's the third of a series we've been doing on the hindrances. So first, I'd like to uh, briefly review what the hindrances are. The hindrances are the primary obstacles in meditation and insight. They're what keep your mind from being present and alert. They happen throughout your meditation, but they also happen throughout the day. Most of the time when you're uh, caught up in life and doing all the different activities we do, and you find that you're really not happy and you're really not present, if you actually pay attention, you'll notice that there's a hindrance present. So what these hindrances are, just uh, the first two weeks we had, the very first one was um, greed or desire, and the second one was um, aversion uh, or hatred, that's kind of a more extreme sense of it, and so today is slap and torpor, and next week will be restlessness and anxiety, and I'm sure you all had some of that too tonight, and then the last week is doubt. Um, they kind of pair each other, a couple of um, the, the first four. Um, you know, greed and desire is kind of the uh, opposite side of the coin of restlessness and anxiety. Um, I, I've, I'm sorry, of aversion and hatred. Um, you know, greed and desire is wanting something. Um, aversion is pushing it away. And in the same way, our sloth and torpor and restlessness and anxiety um, uh, opposite. Um, they're both based on how much energy we have and how we use our energy. Uh, in sloth and torpor, our energy is not accessible. We can't quite get enough effort and energy up. In restlessness, we kind of have too much energy, but we're not using it well, so we're kind of anxious and uptight and tense. Um, the most important thing about the hindrances in meditation is that, and it's really the beautiful thing about mindfulness, in mindfulness it doesn't matter what we pay attention to. Any object is fine as long as we pay attention to it. So any hindrance, the moment that you turn it into your meditation object, you're doing practicing mindfulness. And the hindrance viewed that way as an object to be examined, to be curious about what is this state of sloth and torpor like? What does anxiety actually feel like? And turning the mind of curiosity, of openness to it, uh, turns it into a very different experience than the experience of having your mind clouded over by these, uh, by these states of mind. They're universal. They're there. You know, every 10 minutes, if you check in, you'll notice a hindrance coming by and visiting. Um, we want our mind to be tranquil and alert. And so to check and see what's happening with your mind, you know, if you use that as your reference point, then you can tell what, what, what's happening with your energy. If your mind isn't tranquil, You've got a little bit too much energy and not enough calm. If your mind isn't alert, 
you may have too much calm and not enough energy. So it's really important to start noticing what's really happening to you throughout the day. Um, if you're sitting at your, uh, you know, at the computer working, you're just kind of, just kind of, you know, having struggling, you know, that's really sloth and torpor. It's often not that you actually are sleepy or really tired. It's just, uh, it's a state of mind. And, um, it's really important to have a friendly attitude towards our hindrances. When these unpleasant states of mind, because they're all a little, they tend to be a little bit unpleasant, a little bit, um, there's something to them that doesn't feel quite right. And there's a tendency to make them, you know, well, let's get rid of that and uh, not be friendly with them. Uh, it's very hard to uh, explore them if we don't feel friendly towards them. So first I want to define what sloth and torpor is uh, to some degree. It really refers to a heaviness of the body and a dullness of the mind, a drowsiness, sluggishness, low energy, sleepiness, lethargy, drowsiness. <laughs> Nothing is clear. The mind feels heavy and dull. And there's a difference between sloth and torpor. Um, how many of you have seen a picture of a sloth? You know, they're, they're these animals that kind of hang upside down and don't seem to do anything. You know, so that's, that's kind of what sloth is. It's like this physical heaviness. Uh, whereas torpor is more mental dullness and, and, and um, kind of a feeling like your mind's going through mud and fog and thick. So the sloth is actually more of a physical sensation and the torpor more mental. Um, so you can have both, or you can have one or the other. Now, the interesting thing about sloth and torpor is that it's very important to notice that sloth and torpor can be either pleasant or unpleasant. For instance, um, how many of you uh, have experienced, like, you know, sitting down to meditate, and you find you're kind of getting this nice, dreamy, peaceful state, and, you know, you, you watch your breath, and then all of a sudden you get little images or little thoughts, and it's really nice. It's kind of, uh, you know, but you have no idea what's really going on, but, you know, it's very pleasant, you know. So that, that kind of sloth and torpor is actually a little bit harder to work with because you sort of don't want to. You know, it feels nice. Now, the other type of sloth and torpor just feels dull and heavy. And you try to pay attention to your breath, and it's like you're struggling, and it's, it's unpleasant. It doesn't feel good. Now, that sloth and torpor, because it doesn't feel good, you may have a little more motivation to work with. So it's really important, one of the things to notice when you feel sloth and torpor, is to notice whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Because that will really give you a clue and how hard you have to work with it. Um, one of the uh, things that, uh, especially in retreat, you know, when you go on a long retreat, you know, you enter, everybody at some point enters some sloth and torpor, even if it's not something you normally get. And it's a quality that, that pleasant type of feeling, they call it sinking mind. You just kind of sink into it. Sinking mind is often a form of procrastination. Now, think about that. When you um, when you get into this really nice, pleasant feeling, 
it's, it's often fed by thoughts like, um, I had a really hard day today. You know, I'm just going to relax here. I just need to relax, you know. I'll, I'll meditate later, or I'll meditate tomorrow, I'll really try. So often there's these little subtle parts of uh, thoughts of procrastination of, at another time, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. You know, right now this is good enough. It's really um, helpful if you can differentiate between sloth and torpor and being tired. Sometimes it's hard, but sometimes it's not that hard. So one of the things that um, you know I use to differentiate is I'm really feeling um, very, very sleepy and dreamy, and I try to imagine some fantasy that normally perks me up. Uh, it might be like a favorite song. It might be, let's say, you know, you're, you're planning a vacation or visiting someone. Something that normally stimulates you. And if that stimulates me, then I pretty much know that it's sloth and torpor. That it's really not that I really need, need some sleep. Uh, so you might want to play with that when it, if you're really not sure whether you're sleepy or not. A lot of people, the first sign of sleepiness, okay, time for bed, you know, and that's it. Uh, but really, don't, don't rush off and take a nap right away. See if you can check it out. Uh, is this tiredness or is this a mental habit, a mental state? So, um, what causes sloth and torpor? The primary cause of sloth and torpor usually is a lack of direction. Um, sloth and torpor is not having enough energy. We need to have, you know, to have energy, you have to have a reason to have energy. You have to be doing something. If you just sit and do nothing, you know, the energy tends to get really uh, very low. But then if you want to do something, the energy increases. Um, in daily life, if you have something that you really want to do, your energy just comes up naturally. But the energy has to be directed. So pay attention when you sit down to meditate. Have you directed your energy? Have you, when you sit down, do you just sit down and start meditating? Or do you sit down with the intention, with the direction that, oh, I'm going to try to be mindful every moment during this meditation? Do you actually set your mind ahead of time uh, to do this? That this is what you're doing when you're meditating. Sometimes you forget why we're meditating. What are we doing here? You know, we just kind of sit and, you know, it's, oh yeah, it's a habit, it's good for me. You know, but what are we actually doing here? Um, the second uh, uh, common cause of sloth and torpor is a lack of stimulation. We're used to, the mind likes to be stimulated. The mind does not like having a low level of stimulation. It's a little bit unpleasant. And um, we're in the habit of constantly stimulating our minds. You know, what's next? Here's the phone. Here's something good to read, something fun to listen to, a uh, friend. That, you know, there's just a million things in our lives that are continuously stimulating. We sit down and meditate, and there isn't much going on sometimes. And at first, that low-level stimulation feels a little bit unpleasant. And so the mind doesn't want to be there, and it goes into sloth and torpor. Um, if you actually pay attention to that low stimulation, and you stay with it, 
eventually that low stimulation becomes incredibly pleasant. Um, they've um, done PET scans of the brain of uh, like some Tibetan lamas and uh, who are incredibly trained meditators. They're probably the master meditators on the planet. And um, what they find is that as they get into these deeper and deeper blissful states, the mind does less and less and less. It's everything just quiet. And that's what happens to all of us when we meditate. The mind gets quieter and quieter. There's less and less going on. And at first, that may feel a little bit dull. But as you get quieter and quieter, the, uh, it becomes more and more pleasurable. Um, mindfulness is about being present unconditionally. It's very different than being present with the idea that you're waiting for a better experience. How much of the time are you sitting there meditating, kind of waiting for something to happen, or waiting for it to get a little bit better, or a little more interesting? So a lot of the, de- a lot of the way to deal with this low stimulation, again, is to turn your mind and be curious about it. What is it actually like? Often, um, another uh, major cause of slap and torpor is resistance, is not liking what's happening. Um, you know, Gil calls this um, uh, department store mind. Have you ever, uh, a lot of children, you know, they get dragged around to department stores with, you know, by their parents, you know, going shopping for uh, dresses or something, you know, and the little kids like kind of being dragged along. And the first thing that they, you know, they just get tired. They get exhausted. You know, they don't want to be there. And they just, they just complain, I'm tired, I'm tired. The moment they leave the department store, they're energetic again. Same thing, you know, with children, you, you see them, they, um, you know, they can be really, really tired. And you just say, oh, you want to go for ice cream? And boy, they just perk right up and ready to go out the door. Um, I remember in college, um, uh, I had, um, uh, I was taking histology. Histology, by the way, is, uh, the study of cells. It's like the minute anatomical study of cells. And, uh, it was like my least favorite subject. And all I had to do, I'd open the book, I'd get about three lines into it, and fall asleep. And, you know, I thought it would have been a perfect cure for insomnia. We could, pa- you know, packet it, you know. Um, so, so it was a resistance. My mind just did not want to go there. And so often, uh, different, for, for all of us, different things trigger that. You know, I have, um, a really good friend. When things are tough in her life, she'll like sleep eight, ten hours, I mean, t- 12 hours a day. Um, that's just what she does when she gets upset. That's her way of dealing with it. And that's often what we do in meditation. When we don't like what's happening, we fall asleep. We get tired. Um, sometimes it's a protective mechanism. And with this, we want to really honor it. Um, sometimes with meditation, the mind is very uh, quiet. And with time, some very deep psychological pain can come up. And it may not be able to come up all at once. Sometimes it starts coming up. And that's about you can just deal with a little bit of it. 
I don't know how many of you have experienced grief, but um, you know we don't deal with the grief all at once. You know, we may lose someone, and it's not like it just happens all at once. Sometimes people, they'll, they'll go for weeks, nothing happens, and then all of a sudden they'll be grieving again. Uh, so we are, we're all different, and our psychological pain, as we quiet the mind and we get more connected, comes up in unpredictable ways at unpredictable times. And so sometimes in meditation, it comes up, but we just can't quite, we're not quite ready to be with it all. And so the mind will go into sloth and torpor as a uh, transitory period. And as the, and then, you know, maybe a couple of days later, you're able to work with it a little bit more. So sometimes you want to honor that process. You know, if you want to work with it as best as you can, but don't try to force it. Don't try to push it. Um, what we think increases our energy or decreases our energy, the actual thoughts we have in our minds. For instance, um, uh, have you ever had a, a really large project that you have to do? You know, that, you know, if you were to count, it's got, it has like 10,000 steps, right? This huge, humongous project. And you think about the whole project, everything you're going to have to do that's going to take like nine months, and you're exhausted. You know, because you, you know, your mind just, um, uh, just can't hold it all at once. And same thing, um, you know, have you ever, you know, gone running, like a long-distance run, you know, let's say a marathon, you know, and you're the first quarter mile and go, okay, 25 and three-quarter more miles to go, you know. That's pretty, it's not really that doable. You really have to go right into the moment. Uh, so our thoughts, the thoughts we have, can either tire us or they can energize us. Uh, thoughts of discouragement, of failure, will tire us. If you approach, um, uh, let's say you're gonna, uh, you decide you're gonna do a marathon, and you start out with thoughts like, "Oh, I'll never do this," you know that drains your energy. And often we do things like that. We have those thoughts, and we're just not even aware that we have those thoughts. Um, one other thing about the cause of sloth and torpor is sometimes we confuse the qualities of being passive and being receptive. Being passive is doing nothing. Being receptive is a very active state. Um, there's, um, there's a difference between doing and knowing in meditation. Um, the mind has two very different functions. For instance, let's say you're planning. Your mind is busy planning. That's, it's doing something. But then there's a the part of the mind that knows you're planning. So when you're being passive, you're just letting whatever happens happen. When you're uh, being receptive, you're, you may be planning, but you also know that you're planning. And um, what often happens when you meditate if you don't, is that you calm the, both the doing of the mind, but also the um, knowing of the mind. And that's what causes sloth and torpor. Uh, because you calm everything. You know, you just get into a passive mode. I'm not doing anything here. 
And that's not meditation. Meditation is an active, is something active. And at the same time, that even though meditation is a very active thing we do, it's, um, it's a, it doesn't take much energy. If the hindrances aren't pres- uh, present, meditation is incredibly relaxing and incredible re- incredibly revitalizing. A couple of things that we m- may want to watch for if we are chronically have sloth and torpor is that lack of exercise will often make gives creates sloth and torpor. The body needs movement. The body needs it needs a certain level of activity. So if you haven't done, if you've been sedentary all day long and then you meditate, you know, sometimes that alone is enough to cause sloth and torpor. Uh, the other thing that can cause it is overeating. And I think many people have experienced the after lunch uh, dullness of the mind where they just, you know, um, it's actually been institutionalized in a lot of countries, you know, the siesta, you know, people want to, uh, they eat a the huge lunch and then they want to go to sleep. Um, on retreat, they really, uh, it's often stressed to really eat light so that uh, you can meditate more clearly. Um, but before I go into the, you know, there's, uh, there's quite a few common remedies for sloth and torpor. But before we use any of these what are called remedies or counterbalances, um, I want to say that the, the first Thing that we need to do with, a, with this hindrance or with any hindrance is to be mindful of it. Um, that, this, that often direct mindfulness of a hindrance is all we need to do with it. And um, we want to make the hindrance our object of attention. And sometimes that alone is enough to dispel it, to go away. Um, but often uh, it's not, and we have to work with it a little bit deeper. So the the excuse me. <clears throat> um, I think Bruce mentioned last week the rain formula. Uh, the rain formula is a formula that's um, used for any recurrent mental state. And I'm going to talk about it, but I want to talk about it a little bit differently. I want to focus on one aspect of the RAIN formula. So, But first, we'll start with the very first part. The, um, what you want to do with the hindrance, the first thing you want to do is the R, is you want to recognize it. Okay, you're not going to work with it unless you notice what it is. Okay, So sloth and torpor, it's there. The second part is the A, is acceptance. You want to not argue that it's there. You don't want to push it away. You want to say, oh, this is sloth and torpor. Okay, it's here. Uh, the next part of the formula, the I, is investigation or interest. And this is the part that I really want to talk about because a lot of people uh, are, are often confused in meditation. How do I investigate what's happening? What does that really mean? You know, and people think, oh, well, maybe that's a discursive type of thing you do with your mind. But what it is an investigation of the hindrance. And so what I'm going to do is break up the investigation into five different areas. And it's not that you're going to do them systematically each time. But those areas are a way of, of kind of putting your arms around the hindrance when you can't quite grab it, when you can't see it clearly. 
So the very first one is probably the one you're almost familiar with, and that's physical. How does the hindrance feel physically? How does your body feel, you know, when you have sloth and torpor? And really feel it from the inside. It's not always the same. Sometimes you think it's the same. Oh, yeah, I know what that feels like, you know. But it's really, it can be very different, and you want to notice it from the inside. Are your shoulders slumped? Is your back drooped? And pay attention during your day. It's a great time to do it because if you notice, um, you know, you might be sitting at the computer and you're just kind of like this, you know, and just by moving a little bit, your energy comes up. So swath and torpor has a very physical reaction, a very physical uh, manifestation. Um, the second part of investigation is the energetics of it. Now, um, for some people, that's a difficult term. Other people kind of tune right into it. But um, when you let me use a different hindrance first. Like, uh, let's say you have a lot of desire. You really want something. You know, have you ever experienced that kind of feeling like your body's buzzing? You know, this kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, I just, uh, you know, just a lot of energy seems to be coursing through you. Um, where sloth and torpor, it's kind of like an overall feeling of dullness of, of uh, weariness, of heaviness. So the energy, it's kind of more of, a, of uh, the overall feeling of the entire body. Whereas when we talk about the physical sensation, it's kind of the specifics. Oh yeah, my abdomen feels this way. My back feels this way. My shoulders feel this way. You get into the specifics. This is like kind of the overall energetics of the body. Um, if you're feeling restlessness, the energetics might be the feeling of climbing the walls. Um, the next part of the of investigation is the emotional part. So let's say you notice the feeling of it, you're kind of feeling droopy, and the emotional part is where, where it comes in, whether you like it or don't like it. You know, this is a, this is a pleasant state. You know, makes me happy, makes me feel good. Or this is an unpleasant state, and I'm I'm kind of uh, very unhappy that it's here. So the, the emotions of, of the experience. Um, the fourth area to look at is the mind, the cognitive aspect. Uh, that's the beliefs or little stories we tell ourselves. Again, with sloth and torpor, you might like uh, like what I mentioned before. You might be saying to yourself, "Oh, I had a really hard day today. Therefore, this is why I feel this way." Thoughts like that are kind of useless. You know, you're not really investigating the hindrance. You're kind of getting caught up in a story. And often, you know, we're, we're, we, we don't notice that part of the hindrance, that we're actually telling ourselves a little, a little story. Um, you know, that's where you might say, oh, I'll try better tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll be in it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll drink a cup of coffee tomorrow, and then I'll really be able to meditate, you know. Uh, so all those are the cognitive aspects. And the, the last part of it, the fifth way of looking, of investigating hindrance, is motivationally. What's your intention here? And what that refers to is that whenever there's a hindrance, we're clinging to something. Okay, there's something that we're either pushing away or grabbing, we're, we're holding on to something. And so, what is it that we're holding on to here? That's what the motivation is. What is it we want here? There's something we want. That's 
That's our motivation. What is it that we want here? And for instance, again, with sloth and torpor, our motivation might be that we want to, we want, we want things to be pleasant. We just want to have this pleasant feeling and we're holding on to keeping that pleasant feeling. Um, so, so just to recap that, you know, we're talking about how we approach the hindrance using basic mindfulness, using the RAIN formula. We recognize it. We accept it. We investigate it in the body, the energetics. We investigate it uh, in the emotions, in the mind, and where we're clinging. And then the fourth part of the formula, the N, is um, people use a couple of different ways of saying this, but you know, not taking it personally is my favorite way. We look at the um, hindrance and we and we recognize that this is something we're, we're going through. It's a process. It's not who we are. That everything that we go through is a process. It's not who we are. And that allows us to have a little more spaciousness around the hindrance. We give it a little more room. Um, one other thing I want to... Um, so now that we've, we've worked with uh, mindfulness and the, uh, with the hindrance using the core of mindfulness practice, um, we're going to look at a few other remedies for it that we can bring into into play. Um, effort often begets effort. Um, an example is uh, let's say I'll use a jogging example again. If you if you start jogging, the very first few steps, the first quarter of a mile can be really hard. You're kind of tired, but as you start applying more effort, you get more and more energetic. And um, it's just like with the bicycle, bicycling. Again, you know, you may be starting to bicycle, and as you bicycle, bicycle, then you start coasting. So your effort um, begets more effort, and it's easier to apply effort the more effort you apply. Um, one of the things we want to be doing when we're... Um, looking at our minds, and especially in the states of low stimulation, is that we want to develop a delight in whatever it is that we're doing. That's the, again, that's the magic of mindfulness. It's anything we look at becomes a, a really wonderful object of attention, including the hindrance. Sloth and torpor becomes something interesting, something beautiful. Um, Dignatan, I want to read a very short uh, poem of Dignatan that uh, where he where I think he he talks about this. Peace is every step. The shining red sun is my heart. Each flower smiles with me. How green, how fresh all that grows. How cool the wind blows. Peace is every step. It turns the endless path to joy. So another um, another method to arouse energy is to do more. So on that same vein, energy begets energy. To arouse energy, you do more in meditation. 
For instance, um, if you're finding yourself drifting off, you know, just constantly drifting off into a dreamy state, you can start counting your breaths. How many of you count your breaths sometimes? A lot of you have that, right? Yeah, and um, and if that's not working, you can make the counting a little more complex. You can count forwards and backwards. And that keeps your mind a little bit more busy. Uh, another approach is using touch points. How many of you have used touch points in meditation? Okay. What it, the touch points, what it is, is that you um, you use like, uh, you can be the uh, palms of your hands, like an area the size of a quarter, or your sit bones. Um, and let's say you're watching your breath. You inhale, you exhale, and then there's that big gap between the exhale and the next inhale. So during that gap, instead of paying attention to the breath, you go to the touch point. And you just feel that point in your mind, and then when you inhale again, you go back to the breath. So you inhale, exhale, touch point. Inhale, exhale, touch point. And some people do inhale, touch point, exhale, touch point. And they make it very complex when they're trying to rouse energy because that keeps your mind interested and it brings the energy up. Again, these are methods that really work great for some people and do, and others just, uh, it's not their thing. So, you know, whatever, you know, you can experiment with them. Uh, so the, now here's some of the physical methods you can apply. You know, the number one method, if you're sitting in meditation, is to sit up just a little bit straighter. If you're sitting on a chair, uh, sit without a back support. Uh, this uh, definitely works throughout the day. Um, taking a few deep breaths is a really very useful way to rouse energy. Uh, opening your eyes. Do any of you meditate with your eyes open? So um, there's some schools of meditation like um, Soto Zen where they uh, meditate only with the eyes open. And uh, if you meditate with your eyes open, it's really helpful to do it at like about 30 degrees down. And so um, even though there's some forms of meditation where you actually meditate with your eyes open like this, now that takes a lot of energy. Uh, but um, that's often enough to keep you awake. Um, Looking at a light really helps. If you and um, often on retreat, you know, people get really sleepy. If there's a light, they'll just kind of start, you know, meditate on the light. Um, it can be a light bulb. It can be the moonlight, um, or you, or you can imagine a light. Um, a, one of the techniques that's used is uh, imagining a light at the top, uh, in the middle of your forehead. Um, in general, when you pay attention to the top part of your body, it tends to energize you. When your attention is in the lower part of the body, it tends to relax you. So if you're really restless, you might want to pay attention to your abdomen. It tends to you know, uh, relax you more. But if you're really tired, pay attention to the top of your head. Um, one of the techniques that's taught is, I don't know if any of you have tried this, is pulling the earlobes. And um, it's, a, it's actually, uh, that technique is actually mentioned in the suttas, you know. And um, I often thought that that's the reason the Buddha had such long earlobes. <laughs> um, rubbing your face. Um, changing your posture. The Buddha said you can meditate in four positions. Sitting, standing, walking, or laying down. 
So this those are all really great ways to meditate. You'll often see people on retreat in the middle of like a day-long retreat. People just stand up. You know, they're getting sleepy, they're getting tired, and just standing is a totally acceptable way of meditating. You can do a full full uh, meditation that way. Uh, you can go for a brisk walk or just go outside. If you're doing walking meditation, you can walk backwards if you're getting sleepy. Um, energy is always available you just need to know how to turn on the switch Um, so setting a reasonable goal is really helpful like if you're in the middle of sloth and torpor sometimes saying to yourself okay I'm going to pay attention to just five breaths just five. And sometimes having this little goal is enough to get enough energy up. Uh, and then and then you do those five breaths. And then, okay, five more breaths. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha said um, that, um, well, there's this uh, Pali word called samvega. Uh, the word samvega means uh, basically means urgency, the urgency to wake up. It's a feeling that it's important and, and now is the time to wake up. And uh, the Buddhists uh, gave uh, five different things to contemplate on, to, um, to stimulate you into reminding you how important it is to pay attention. And, uh, of course, one of the ones that he recommended is contemplating on death, that we could die at any time. You know, life is precious. This is the time to be really fully present. Uh, you said meditate on sickness. Contemplate on sickness. These are the things that might motivate you. You might want to think about what, what does motivate you. Uh, that at some point you may be sick, so you won't be able to practice them. So this is the time. Um, you know, you might get senile. So this is the time now when you're not senile. Um, so uh, I won't go into the other ones. You know, see what's uh, what, what. What I'd like to recommend is that you think about what really inspires you in practice, and use that as something that you um, that you bring up every time you meditate. What really moves you? What really stimulates you? Um, for me, one of the things that um, that has been very very effective for me has been. Um, a number of years ago, um, I had the good fortune of meeting the Dalai Lama. And um, and at one point, you know, he had us stand in line and shook each one of our hands. And, um, you know, I was probably like the 200th person, you know, whose hand he shook. And in that moment, he was so present and so loving and so kind. And it was such an incredibly powerful, moving moment to me. You know, there was so much connection in that moment. And I didn't have all these ideas about him being this great guru or anything like that. You know, to me, it was just like, oh, this this should be an interesting experience, you know. And, um, you know, and that moment has been a very deep inspiration to me as to what my own potential is. And often in meditation, uh, I pretty much almost every day, I just bring that moment to mind. 
as an inspiration to to that kindness and openness of heart. Um, I think it's really helpful at the beginning of your sitting to remind yourself why you practice, to really touch uh, deeply your motivation. Sometimes having uh, like little rituals are helpful, like sometimes reading a poem, uh, lighting a candle, something that that uh, says this is a really special time uh, and I want to use it well. Um, I want to say just one, one, two more things to slap and torpor. You know, if nothing works, you know, take a nap. You know, that's always an option, you know. But don't take a nap too soon. Always take the time to at least, even if, even if you know you're going to take a nap, but at least spend a little time exploring what that, what's going, really going on. Really utilize the time. Um, the one thing that's really important to remember is um, meditations, like from one day to the next, can vary dramatically. You can feel just incredibly energetic and alert, and boy, this meditation feels great. And then, you know, the next day, you can just feel like like you're just struggling every step of the way. Um, in mindfulness, it doesn't matter how alert you are. It doesn't matter how energetic you are. It doesn't matter how clear you are. What matters is that you're putting out your best effort. It's the continuity of that best effort that transforms us. So the days that you're sluggish, are you meeting that sluggishness with the best that you can? And that's good enough. It's good enough to, to even if you can just barely touch it, but you're really applying the practice in trying to welcome that state, being friendly with it, examining it. Uh, it's that continuity of the best that we can do. And knowing that it changes. You know, the, you know, we can feel great, that goes away. We can feel, you know, like we're really struggling, that goes away too. That's what really, it's that continuity of the best effort that, uh, that bears the fruit over time. And I want to read, read you one last thing. I want to read you um, a poem um, that talks about um, uh, a little bit of what we've been talking about. It's called Tomorrow. It's by David Budwell. Tomorrow we are bones and ash. The roots of weeds poking through our skulls. Today, simple clothes, empty mind, full stomach, alive, aware, right here, right now. Drunk on music, who needs wine? Come on, sweetheart, let's go dancing while we've still got feet. So, um, so thank you. 
And um, if you have any questions, I'd be happy or comments or share your uh, your experience of sloth and torpor. Yes. I wait for the mic, please. Thank you. I have a question about something that may not be directly connected to sloth and torpor, but it has to do with the practice. Yes. When, let's say you have a, a normal meditation time, like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. One day you sit, but you feel, the act of meditation feels stressful, like it's a lot of effort. Like the thought of meditating feels stressful. Uh, how, how do you deal with that? Um, the, you turn your attention to the stress. What does that stressfulness really feel like in your body? You look at look at it in the body first, because usually there's there's sort of um, you know like when you don't want to meditate, it's that, that's really what you're talking about—the stress of you really don't feel like meditating right now, but you but you've committed yourself to it, and you're go, going to do it, but you're resisting. When you're resisting, you feel it, you know, and you know like just the idea of it, I can feel it in my chest, you know, that's where I would tighten up, maybe your abdomen. Um, and again, you know, sometimes that's enough to really work, to, to get you through it. Sometimes you may have to go a little deeper. And that's where those various investigations I mentioned before are helpful. To go, oh, emotionally, how do I feel about this? Boy, I really, um, I'm unhappy about this. You know, this is, you know, I'm unhappy about wanting to meditate right now. Um, you know, and what are the thoughts going through my head? You know, um, I shouldn't be feeling this resistance. Maybe that's what's going on through your mind. You know, um, I, you know, I shouldn't feel like I don't want to meditate. I should want to meditate. So you're, you're not only not feeling like meditating, but then you're judging yourself for not wanting to meditate. So there's usually a lot going on at that time. So you turn your attention to the feeling of stress, to whatever's happening. Yeah, feel free if you have any other practice questions. We don't have to stay on the on the topic of sloth and torpor. Yes. Is it on? Lights on? Yeah. Is five minutes enough? I, you know, I, um, prior to the arrival of our son, uh, who's 10 months old, um, it was easier to find the hour. <laughs> so, um, what I've been struggling with is whether 5, 10, 15 minutes is enough, because um, obviously his needs are fairly immediate. So, um, anytime that you're mindful, is you're training your mind to be mindful. Um, you know, when you have young children, you know, if you can be present with that child, uh, you're holding the child. What a perfect time to meditate and be aware of this child. If your mind is drifting off, not thinking about your presence right there, uh, then you're not practicing. But you can be do, you can be washing dishes and practicing. Um, you can practice doing anything. But taking the five minutes of actually doing a formal practice, it's a really great training. It's still helpful. In fact, um, that's something I really recommend to people who are, who are struggling getting a regular practice going, is that you sit on your cushion for five minutes every day 
Just do it every day, every day, every day. Um, and and don't judge yourself if that's all you do. And then if one day you feel like longer or you have the luxury of time, do it. Um, but if you don't, that's good. You're still create, creating a habit. You're training the mind. And sometimes when you're only going to sit for a short period, you put a lot into it. You know, sometimes you sit for a full hour and you're complacent. You know, you really, you know, you're just kind of, eh, you know. So sometimes that, that little five minutes can be very, very special time. Yes. Related to the same question or continuing on the same question, if um, if I can't for whatever reason get myself to sit, whatever it is, and tell myself that, okay, I'm just going to be try and be mindful in whatever it is I'm doing, whether it is driving or washing the dishes or hiking, walking, running, whatever it is. Is that good enough or is there something about the actual sitting that is really important to try and do? Um, it depends, okay? Uh, the one thing about sitting meditation is that you're not accomplishing anything. And the, and so it really lets you honestly be mindful. Very often when you're uh, being mindful doing the dishes, there's a certain part of the mind that's saying, uh, well, at least I'm getting the dishes done. Or uh, at least I'm getting some exercise here. Uh, so so some of that, it, it really is a matter of, of, of the honesty of why you might not be sitting because um, uh, so for some people they're able to just really uh, stay awake all the time you know and that's ideal it shouldn't matter what you do but there's something very special about taking a time when you're actually not doing anything if that that's why um, in the in our tradition when we do walking meditation we do, we don't go somewhere we walk back and forth an area that's about 20 feet. That's how formal walking meditation is done. Because you're not going anywhere. It's really clear when you go back and forth, there's nothing, you're not accomplishing. And so the mind can really settle in a very, a very particular way. But you're still training mindfulness if you're being mindful any other time. So I guess there are two aspects to it then. Mindfulness and the not doingness. It right. sounds like. Right. And the not doingness is as important, it seems it's a like. Different, it's a different training of a different part of the mind. It's a different practice. You could theoretically wake up doing anything. You know, if, you're, if you were to able to stay mindful, uh, but it's a, it's a little bit, it's harder to notice a lot of things are going on in the mind when you're being, doing activities. It's a little bit harder. When you sit down and meditate and you're really not doing anything else, a lot of things come up that will not come up when you're being mindful doing the dishes. But why is that good? That can actually cause a lot more restlessness and a lot more of the hindrances. Uh, the hindrances may come up because things are, that are buried come up. And, um, you know, and that's very good. <laughs> It's very good for those things to come up, for you to be able to really look at them and see them. Because they're there. Um, do any of you um, 
use any rituals at the beginning of your meditation um, or any practices at the beginning to get your to really uh, inspire yourself? Do any of you do anything like that? All right, over here. Would you like me to share them? <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, uh, I usually do, uh, I always light a candle and incense and offer it to my guru's feet and uh, invoke all the devas and spirits. And I have a, a lot of celestial friends. And I usually do an arti, a fire ceremony, and um, I chant bhajans, and um, and I meditate. That's I try to to do this. It's, ritual helps me. I grew up Catholic, mm. so it's kind of a a thing that I I like. I like rituals, and uh, it's the routine too is. It's nice. It works for me. Mm-hmm. And it also evokes my devotion. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, people have um, different relationships with ritual. People, if there's people who've grown up Catholic who go both ways. You know, ritual is, uh, you know, something they want to stay away from. Or I had good Catholic. <laughs> you had good Catholic. Okay. <laughs> um, so if if ritual isn't something that feels good to you, there's still practices you can do that inspire you. You know, so what what is there what can inspire you? Just remembering why you're practicing. It doesn't have to be a, a specific ritual, but just taking the time. Um, one of the other things that I do uh, that stimulates how my effort and my practice is that. Um, I recite the Eightfold Path every time I sit. Um, you know, the Buddha uh, taught, uh, I, I won't go into what the Eightfold Path is. I know some of you are very familiar with it and some aren't. But um, the Buddha taught a path that, affects, that, that uh, treats your whole life of how to wake up in every moment of your life and in every activity that you do. So, um, I, you know, I remember that. Every time I sit, I go through every one of those eight steps in my mind and to remind myself that this is why I'm practicing. And that's very helpful to me. Remembering that just uh, uh, reminds me to really, um, you know, put my best effort when I'm meditating. So. Yes. Can we get, you know, it's being uh, taped and this, uh, so wait one moment. <laughs> you know, we get, uh, go ahead. A ritual that, that I do is um, putting a protective bubble around myself and then counting from 10 to 1 slowly with saying the word relax in between each number. I find I'm able to drop into the meditative state so much easier and so much faster and so much more. Uh, consistently when I do the 10 to 1, 10, relax, 9, relax, you know, even slower, all the way to 1. It really 
helps me to stop thinking about the groceries and the, the car and the trip and the, you know, everything else. And then just having a protective bubble around me. And then I also, um, put a grounding cord from the base of my spine to the center of the earth to release anything that I don't want. So those are my little rituals that work. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Yeah, th- th- those are wonderful. You know, and what's really special about doing the same thing every day is it's just like uh, learning to play the piano. You know, you play the same thing over and over again. It gets easier and easier. So what we do is we condition ourselves. So when we have these little rituals that we do right before we sit, uh, we get calm quicker. We enter a deep state a lot quicker. So it's very useful to do the same type of uh, things so we come to expect it. Like one of the things that's recommended is to uh, try to meditate at the same time every day, if you can. Try to meditate in the same place, in a place that you associate with being calm. So that just by entering that special space, that special, or even if it's just a spot you sit, always the same spot, you automatically have that association. Just like, like what she's doing with 10, 9, the moment you start counting, you have that association. Or the moment you sit there, that association. You condition the mind into um, a favorable place for going deeper and connecting quicker. So it's, um, uh, it's a very useful, useful thing. And um, we have time for one short, short comment or question, or we can end it. Yes. Uh, so here's one. I do regular meditation and definitely same time, same thing I do. And um, there are times that it's easier. But um, I always start with this. But five, six years ago, I bought these two, uh, the ring that they, I hit them together, yeah, and then yeah. the bells. <laughs> so, um, and uh, God, that helped me a lot. I mean, it's just as soon as I use that few times and then follow the sound, I'm there. I mean, it's That's just, great. I'm so used to that. And as you said, my place, my altar, is as soon as I sit, uh, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm there. And uh, that bell really helps. And I've been using it for almost six years. Great. And I bought it from in East West. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a little By accident. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, sound is a really wonderful way of, of uh, quieting the mind. So thank you all very much.